0: Welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark.
1: And I'm Bethan. Welcome back, everybody. And thank you for joining us once again this week. Before we get started, shall we say a huge thank you to our newest Patreon supporters? Um, Did you want to do the honours, Mark, or shall I?
0: I'll do the honours, yep. So, Jess Monteith, Steve I, Kim MC, Emily Denton, Johnny Burness, Claire Bragg, Leanne Kennedy, Jason, Ashley Weston, Anna Murphy, Katrina Moore, Jay Hadland, Nike Bargie, Rob Hampton, Grant Merchant, Nat, and Caroline Grace Buttigieg. Thank you to each and every one of you. There's loads of you there that's um, blown us away. We're so grateful for your support through Patreon, and, and thanks to all of our existing supporters too. If you would like to join these people, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash
1: Yeah, huge thank you to all of you. That's absolutely incredible. The missing persons crisis is a silent epidemic across the UK. Around 170,000 people are reported missing every year, a figure that several charities and the UK police have long acknowledged as a significant underestimate. According to the missing persons charity Missing People, one disappearance is officially recorded every 90 seconds in the UK. Most of these missing individuals are found alive and well within a relatively short period of time. It's estimated that around 95% or more of missing persons cases are resolved quickly, often within the first 48 hours of being reported. These individuals might have run away, experienced a temporary disconnection, or encountered some other situation that led to their absence. The remaining 5% are the ones who were never found. No clues, no threats. No clear reason for leaving, they simply vanish from the face of the earth as if they never even existed in the first place. Often they are the victims of foul play, others are suicides and a very small minority of them have simply made an excellent job of disappearing and leaving no footprints behind them. Whatever the reason, having a loved one go missing is an agonising and emotionally turbulent experience marked by a deep sense of helplessness and uncertainty. The distressing mixture of fear, worry and grief is often accompanied by a constant cycle of hope and then despair as one grapples with the unknown fate and well-being of the missing person. Everyday routines become a struggle, haunted by the absence and unanswered questions that amplify the heartache. The mind is consumed with thoughts of where they might be, if they are safe and if they will ever return, leaving those left behind in a state of emotional limbo, yearning for closure and desperate to reconnect with their missing loved one.
0: It's just An unbearable torture for those that are left behind, isn't it? That limbo.
1: It really is. And it really got me thinking about how deeply affected I was by the missing person in my local area recently. And very sadly, his body was found. And I didn't even know him. The only reason that he was on my radar was because I would see the missing persons posters on my walk to work. And I shared about this in a Crime Wave episode about the case and some more information. And I kind of reached out on social media and just said, what can we do? What can I do? Can I help? And his family was so eager for people to share any news articles to really raise awareness if anybody had seen anybody or had any sightings of him, you know, they were so keen for anybody and everyone to get involved and to try and help them find him. And I didn't even know him and it affected me. So it's just almost unthinkable for the people who are who are so close to the person who's gone missing.
0: And if you look at those statistics, so five percent of that hundred and seventy thousand people that are reported missing in the UK every year are probably not going to be found. They have, you know, very sadly either been murdered, potentially taken their own lives, which is incredibly sad too, of course. But there's a big proportion that have just decided to walk out of their lives. And that's thousands of people every year that are doing that quite successfully. And that's quite a weird statistic as well, because I know I've shared it before, and I don't mind talking about it, but I nearly did that. I've thought about doing that. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners have, have been in that situation mm, too. And yeah. you think back in history, even Agatha Christie, who we've spoken about, we're yeah. both massive fans of hers. She did that. Of she course, walked out yeah. of her life for 10 days or so when she was having a mental health crisis. So I never spoke about
1: it ever again. I
0: never spoke about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Whereas perhaps in this day and age, she she, she might have spoken about it. But yeah, it's, it's just, it's a really sad statistic that all of the outcomes, whether it is murder, suicide, or somebody feeling so hopeless and helpless that they just need to walk out of their life, that's also really sad too. So yeah, it's, um, it's sad for the people left behind and it's incredibly sad for those that, that feel they, they have no other option than to do that.
1: And this week, we're going to go back to 1988 to discuss an especially disturbing and frustrating missing persons case that the police to this very day believe was a result of serious foul play. They have a good idea of who is responsible and where the missing person may be found. But even after more than three decades, nobody has been able to prove it. And I feel like when we go back to, you know, it's not that long ago, 1988, that was literally the year before I was born. It's not that long ago at all. But the difference with no social media, the difference in what phones were like, what connections between people were like, it probably was a lot, well, it definitely was a lot easier for people to either go missing of their own choice or to go missing at the hands of someone else and to not be found or for a very long time not be found.
0: Yeah, you could probably move to the next major town or city And it'd be like you're emigrating back then. I mean, people are going to get in touch and say it definitely wasn't like that back then. But we didn't, we weren't as connected. I remember my dad having a mobile phone in the late eighties, I think it was. And it was in a briefcase. The entire briefcase was the phone. And we obviously (laughs) had no internet. And yeah, it was just, it was a really weird time compared to now and how connected we are globally so yeah yeah, it's it was a lot easier for people to to go missing and to never be found again back then and you're right it wasn't that long ago
1: no and it is really odd isn't it when you think about the technology we have now my dad was um very much part of the industry in the mobile phone sector so as and when mobiles became more prevalent and as and when new mobiles came out he was quite often one of the first ones to have them so I remember him coming home with this Motorola Razor flip phone and it was just the most incredible thing ever. And I feel like nowadays you just look at it and think, what is this? I, I'm pretty sure there were no photos or anything. I think you could make a picture up out of the text that you wrote in. But yeah, yeah. fascinating. On the 16th of February, 1973, Peter and Christine Boxall welcomed their first child, a baby boy named Lee. The family lived in Surrey and soon after the family welcomed another child, a baby girl named Lindsay. The Boxall family grew up in Cheam, a charming suburban village located in the London borough of Sutton in the UK. Lee grew up and developed into a sensitive and caring soul with a massive passion for football. Living in Cheam, it was no surprise that the football mad Lee would come to support the local team of Sutton United. However, Lee loved football so much that he would often attend different team games as a hobby at the weekend. As Lee continued to grow, his caring personality led to him connecting with a good bunch of friends. His good behaviour also led to him achieving great grades at school. And as Lee hit his teenage years, his family reported how he was perhaps a little too trusting. He was not very streetwise. By 1988, when Lee was 15, his routine consisted of attending school Monday to Friday and then on a weekend attending football matches with his friends. As Lee was a trusting, sensitive and good-mannered young man, his family had no reason not to trust him with the independence that he was given. Lee would never stay out late. If his plans changed, he would always walk to a nearby payphone to inform his parents of those changes. Lee was a good boy who stayed out of trouble. He was what they said as the perfect son. He was a doting older brother to Lindsay. Before we discuss the fateful night of September the 10th, 1988, we are going to take a quick break here to hear from our show sponsor.
0: This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp. And as always, BetterHelp have given us a prompt to think about this week. So they've asked us to think about how we feel about the end of year season. Do you look forward to the holidays? Maybe you struggle with seasonal blues, so sad disorder. Um, I definitely struggle with that. Or just the thought of Christmas approaching and, and what that means to, to different people.
1: This time of the year can be a lot and it's natural to feel some sadness or anxiety about it. There's a lot of pressure on us all to ensure everything is Instagram perfect. There's a lot of monetary pressures on people too. And I feel like you'll, you may remember this about me, Mark, but I get so excited about Christmas and so into Christmas and all of that, that the new year is tends, tends to be my kind of real depressive moment because I'm just like, Oh, Christmas is over. But I find myself losing any motivation from about October onwards. I just don't want to do any work. I just want to deal with, think about Christmas and it, it, I just don't want to work. I don't want to do work in November. That's a ridiculous thing to think about. And it's so silly because of course you should and it shouldn't be like that at all. But I just feel like it's a it's just such a big build up.
0: I like to be able to wind down a little bit so not quite as uh, extreme as yourself (laughs) at this time of year but I do like to wind down as we approach the end of the year because I think that gives you a bit of brain space to reflect back on the previous year, plan for the new year and what you want to achieve a little bit as well and I never really get the opportunity to unwind and that bothers me and that's a huge frustration that I have that that time isn't really there. So yeah, lots of pressures for lots of people. And it is, a, it is and can be a tough time of year for, for everybody.
1: It can be really hard time of year as well when you're surrounded by happy smiling faces, if you're not feeling 100% yourself. But adding something new and positive to your life can counteract some of those feelings.
0: Therapy can be a bright spot amid all of the stress and change, something to look forward to, to make you feel grounded and to give you the tools to manage everything that's going on.
1: Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries, which is so important at this time of year. So make sure you can say yes to what you want to do, but no to the parts that you don't want to be involved in.
0: Don't forget, therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already. BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health.
1: Our listeners get 10% off of their first month at betterhelp.com slash red.
0: That's h slash red, R-E-D. September the 10th, 1988
1: began as a normal Saturday for the Boxall family. They all had their own plans for the weekend. Christine had decided to go and visit her mother. 13-year-old Lindsay was going to see a friend who lived locally and Peter was planning to stay home and do some jobs around the house. Whilst Christine, Peter and Lindsay got up early to prepare for the day ahead, Lee, as is typical of a boy of his age, stayed in bed a bit later than everyone else. Later that morning after Christine and Lindsay had already left the house, Lee emerged from his room in his PJs and sat in the living room. Peter needed to go to the supermarket to do some grocery shopping and he saw Lee in the living room, still kind of half dead to the world, barely awake, and asked him about his plans for the day. Lee yawned and shrugged and then muttered something about going to see a football game. Peter would later describe how he seemed to be half asleep so he didn't really push him any further with questions. Instead he said goodbye to his son and headed out of the door and this was just after 10 in the morning. The football game that Lee was talking about was Sutton United's away game in Lancashire. The match was taking place 230 miles away. A close friend of Lee's had got a ticket for the match and was travelling on the supporter's coach. The previous day, Lee had made it clear to this friend that he was not going and instead he gave his friend some money to purchase a match day programme for him. However, there was a much more local football game that was being played that day at the nearby Selhurst Park in Croydon. It was a bright, warm and sunny day. Lee adored being out in the sun and his family knew that Lee would end up going out. If not to football, then he'd go meet some friends locally. The house was empty when Lee left, so nobody can be sure what time it was, but it's believed that Lee left the family home for what would be the very last time at around 10.45. Lee walked a short distance from his house to Sutton Town Centre where he met a friend at around 11 o'clock and the two boys wandered around the town for a few hours. They visited a few shops. Witnesses later observed them casually sitting and happily chatting together on a bench as friends would. Lee looked happy and calm and nobody saw anything strange about the two boys. Lee's friend would later tell police that they went their separate ways at about one o'clock in the afternoon. Lee didn't say exactly where he was going but had earlier mentioned that he might go and watch the football game at Selhurst Park however this wasn't a definite plan. Lee's father, Peter, got home from his shopping trip just after midday to find that the house was empty. It wasn't a surprise. He fully expected that Lee would have gone out to watch a football match. And as the weekend match fixtures usually kicked off at 3pm, Lee would not be expected to arrive back until at least five o'clock that evening. At that point, there was no reason to feel concerned and Peter got on with his day. 5pm came and went with no sign of Lee. At 6pm, Christine, who was still out visiting her mum, called the family home just to check up on the family. Peter answered the phone and informed his wife that everything was fine, but he also casually mentioned that Lee wasn't home yet. After the call ended, Peter, who still didn't feel like there was much to worry about, simply got on with his evening. However, Christine felt somewhat less relaxed. She knew it was unlikely not to telephone and let his family know about his whereabouts. So she decided to keep phoning the house intermittently just to check whether Lee was back yet.
0: Isn't that interesting though, that she, that instinct is already kicking in for her because I suppose based on previous experience, yeah, he is a good boy. He calls home and he says if he's going to be back late. But I wonder if she almost had this kind of sixth sense that something is amiss here, potentially. I can't put my finger on it, but Mm -hmm. I need to be periodically phoning home to just see if he's back because I can't fully rest until I know that he is.
1: Yeah, and she should be having like a nice little visit with her mum.
0: Yeah, and this isn't particularly late and this is a Saturday. And the football wasn't really going to kick off until three. So, yeah, six isn't particularly late, but already she's got that that feeling.
1: At the time, Cheam was, and to be honest, still is, one of the relatively safer areas of London. And so foul play never even crossed the parents' minds. Peter believed that Lee was just delayed in getting home from the match and would arrive back any minute. However, as 9pm approached, with still no sign of his son, his relaxed demeanour gradually gave way to a creeping sense of anxiety. Christine called the house again not long after this and asked if Lee was at home and when he informed his wife that their son was not home, Christine was immediately worried and decided to hastily make her way back home. At 10pm, the couple decided to call several friends and family members in the local area to see if anybody had seen Lee, but nobody had seen or heard from him all day. As their sense of panic escalated, they began to call local hospitals, fearing that Lee had possibly been injured, but these calls turned up nothing. By midnight, the family saw no other option but to ring the police. Initially, the police were highly dismissive and they didn't take the situation seriously. They tried to convince Lee's frantic parents that their son was, in all likelihood, a typical 15-year-old lad, probably out breaking the rules for once. And we see this so often, don't we, because... You can understand why the police may feel like that at first and why it's a valid query. However, these parents know he just doesn't do that.
0: I think that that's what annoys me about this because you need to just go on the parent's. You need to let them steer you and how seriously you take this report of a missing child because they know that he's not a typical 15 year old that would be out breaking the rules because he doesn't do that. He's a good kid. So they can't really say, well, this happens all the time because, yeah, it probably does. But our boy is different to the other boys that you might encounter. And this is not typical for him. And I think by this point, yeah, midnight, it's September, it's pitch black, it's going to be cold probably by this point. I mean, you just, as a parent of a 15-year-old boy who is usually very good at keeping you updated of his whereabouts, you are going to be absolutely panic-stricken at this point, aren't you, at midnight?
1: And I do feel like nowadays it doesn't almost matter if that child has a history, a well-documented history of running away. The, the police still take it very seriously and they will still put alerts out on Facebook and try and encourage the public to help them immediately. Whereas back in the day, there was a lot more of this, we'll just wait a, a certain length of time, wait, wait and see. We'll wait until the morning and then we'll start reporting things. Nowadays, it's really not like that at all.
0: But I, I suppose, yeah, maybe now because people have got mobile phones and all of that kind of stuff, they've got much more of a digital footprint that can be tracked and traced. Maybe it's, you know, if someone goes missing now and you can't get hold of them as well, I don't know, you're going to much more quickly know that something's wrong. Yeah, yeah, it's just so different, isn't it? But you're right, I think back then in the 80s, it would have, the police would have just been, look, you know, there's no need to panic, let's just chill out a bit until the morning and then we'll kind of take more serious action to locate him but at this point yeah they're probably just yeah probably a bit too relaxed about it and I don't Mm. think that would be the case now.
1: Utterly dejected and under immense emotional stress Peter and Christine went home and dug in for a long anxious and sleepless night. They waited and waited, desperately hoping that their eldest child would come walking in and their living nightmare would end. However, as the sun rose early the next morning, Lee had still not arrived back home. And now certain that something terrible had happened, they contacted the police yet again. They pleaded with them to do something. They insisted Lee would never stay out this late. And if he did, he would telephone and inform his parents. This time, the police did decide to send an officer round to speak to the family. The police took a description of Lee and asked what his plans had been for the day before. Peter mentioned that Lee had said he might go to the football, but they were not completely sure whether he had gone in the end. And Lee's friend, who had seen him the previous day in the town centre, was spoken to and confirmed that Lee had mentioned a football match, but again, he couldn't be sure whether or not Lee had actually gone. The attending officer then invited Peter to escort him in the car and drive around searching for Lee. Over the following few hours, the two men searched around the local area, the area outside the football stadium and the town centre, but they found no trace of young Lee. A missing persons investigation was launched with the main theory being that Lee had simply run away from home. His family members outrightly rejected such a narrative. They insisted that Lee was a happy and stable young man. He had zero reason to abandon his life in Sutton with them. The police knew that Christine was a fiercely overprotective mother and it was uncovered that when Lee had begun attending high school, Christine had got a job at the same school purely because she felt she needed to keep an eye on him. So was it possible that Lee had absconded because he felt trapped and smothered and that he yearned for freedom? You know, they had to go, they had to think about it, I suppose.
0: I suppose so. They're looking at this family objectively. They don't know them, and they're hearing something like that and thinking, "Yeah, is this an overprotective mom? And is Lee just yeah acting out and desperate to get away from from her?" I don't know. I mean, yeah, I I, I don't know how I feel about her getting a job there at his school to keep an eye on him. Makes me a bit embarrassed for him actually, um, but. She would have had the right in- intentions and right motivations, wouldn't she,
1: yeah, and I think as long as it's not he's she's not his teacher um you know she's not done this to try and keep tabs on him every day, you know every minute of the day, but she's just there to potentially know if something's going wrong. I don't know it's it's an odd one, isn't it? but I don't think it says that he would feel smothered though because surely there'd have been some conversation where he said, "Mum, I hate you being the." teaching assistant or the playground assistant or the dinner lady or whatever she was doing at the school um
0: and the 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 main point is that the family rejecting that narrative that he has run away because again they know him and they know what he's like and actually there's no judgment from me because we were talking before we hit record about my dog had an operation on friday and we left him at the vets and i could have quite happily just stayed in the car outside the vets all day
1: <laughs> or phoned <laughs> them
0: every sort of half an hour is he okay is he okay is yeah. he okay so and that's a dog that's not a human being so
1: and i'm really yeah lucky i completely that get it now my eldest has gone to school they have an app that they put pictures up of them at school and tell you what they've been doing. You didn't have that in the 80s. I am so lucky to have that link with her school. It's incredible, Mark, honestly. And when it didn't work for a few days and they couldn't upload anything, a couple of the mums that I talked to, we were all saying, oh, we we feel lost because we just want to know that they're happy and what they're doing. And then when you see the pictures and they're just having a great time learning stuff, it's really lovely. So yeah, there's no judgment from me either because... I get why she wanted to be there. And actually, the police did begin to then trust the family's instincts. They did a full assessment of the home, the general dynamic of the family. And by day three, they completely changed their stance on the matter. They agreed that Lee had no clear reason to run away, that he had enjoyed a happy and stable childhood. He had a decent relationship with his parents and younger sister. And they said that the runaway theory no longer made sense.
0: And do you know what I also think at this point, how, how difficult it is for the police, because I'm thinking they've gone through the house, they've probably searched Lee's bedroom looking for clues and stuff like that. They're thinking he's run away, but actually, you know, this is awful, but we have had it with Tia Sharp, for example, her body was found in the loft of her home or yeah. her grandmother's home. So what? What the police can't really win because what if that was the case here? Should they have been searching that house? Should mm-hmm. they have been going into the loft and looking for potentially Lee's body and putting the family through that immense trauma that actually we think Lee might have come to harm in this house or we need to at least discount that theory and we think one of you could be responsible for his disappearance? Yeah. So had that ultimately been proven to be the case and they'd not done anything in those first three days that... That showed they were investigating that as a potential, we'd be slating them for it. So, yeah, it is, they have got an incredibly difficult task.
1: I completely agree because they should be following every op- option and every avenue.
0: Yeah. But but now, knowing what we know, if they had been searching that house looking for Lee's body, we'd be like, what the fuck are they doing that for? They should be out there pounding the pavements looking for him out there because, you know, you'll go on to talk about it. I know this case a little bit. And, you know, that certainly wasn't what happened. He wasn't in that house.
1: But yeah, it's just, it is a really almost impossible job, isn't it? It is, yeah. After gathering as much information as they could and establishing a vague timeline of events from the day that Lee had gone missing, the police decided to focus their attention on the football matches that Lee had talked about. So Christine and Peter were called in to view multiple hours worth of CCTV footage from two football games. Christine would later describe the experience as being like looking for a needle in a haystack. They were unable to find any evidence that Lee had been there. The police continued with their football match line of inquiry, however, and publicly appealed for witnesses at the game to come forward. News of Lee's disappearance began to make the news, and the police used the media coverage to circulate Lee's image to the public, urging them to keep an eye out for him. Two days later, a young witness came forward with a highly significant development. So two young boys who knew Lee from school said that they had seen him that day at around 2.50, leaving a local Tesco store. They didn't speak to him, but they saw him walking alone in the general direction of back to his house. So this was significant because it meant that Lee did not go to any football match. He didn't go to the Sutton United away game, which was like 230, 250 miles away. And even more, the local Crystal Palace match at Selhurst Park. That was a half an hour train ride away, at least. Both games were scheduled to kick off at three o'clock. So now the police knew that at 2.50, Lee was nowhere near either of them. This revelation caused considerable damage to the investigation mainly because a very large quantity of missing persons posters of Lee had been printed and distributed around that area where he'd lived which stated that Lee was at the football. Therefore many potential witnesses had probably disregarded any sightings of Lee as the police had stated Lee was in a different place at the time. The search for Lee went downhill from there. The leads dried up, as did the reported sightings of him, and updated missing persons posters were distributed, a missing person alert was printed on the labels of several brands of milk, which was quite common back then, but nothing of substance came of these efforts. After three months of constant dead-end leads, it was decided to feature Leeds' disappearance on an episode of Crime Watch. Lee's case was featured on the show several more times over the following 12 months. And with all this going on, the police believed that they might have received at least one small piece of information, but no new leads came to light. So instead, they began looking at the sex offender database and began looking for any possible suspects who were in the area at the time who may have taken Lee. Sadly, however, this too produced nothing new. With no further avenues left to explore, the case into Lee Boxall soon went cold. However, in late 1990, the police picked up a lead that grabbed their attention an off-duty Met Police officer attended a party. Whilst there, a heavily intoxicated male bank worker openly bragged about how he and his friends had beat a young boy to death back in 1988 before burying him in a graveyard. The man was promptly arrested and brought in for questioning. One of the man's work colleagues later informed the police that she too had heard of this tale that the man had told. However, as soon as the man sobered up, he came to his senses, he backtracked on the whole story. He claimed he'd never actually hurt anyone. And obviously, sobering up, he must have thought to himself, God, what? Like, I've just said all this when I was drunk. So he kind of had to backtrack completely. And, I mean, this man's home was searched. Several graveyards were inspected, but no evidence of any wrongdoing could be found. And ultimately, this lead kind of led to a dead end. Undeterred, however, Lee's family pledged to go on searching for Lee for as long as it took. Even after the police stopped actively searching for him, they continued to keep public interest alive by continuously circulating missing persons posters far and wide, month on month, year on year. They paid for Lee's face to be plastered onto billboards and they bought advertising space in the local newspapers, filling the page with Lee's face and fresh pleas to the public to help them to find him. This went on for years and as a result the image of a young Lee Boxall wearing a blue hoodie smiling happily at the camera has probably become one of the most recognisable and familiar missing persons images in the UK to this very day. Despite this however Lee remained missing and as much as they tried to keep the focus on finding the truth of what happened to their beloved son Lee's parents had to endure the perpetual anguish of not knowing what had happened. Lee was gone, life continued in his absence and as the years passed by the police and the public gradually began to forget about him. This is not the end of the story however it would be 21 years in the making but a big lead was still to come. In 2011, a local grave digger named William Lambert was jailed for 11 years for sexually abusing several young girls aged between 11 and 15. And during his trial, the court heard how Lambert had raped several children on tombstones.
0: Oh my God. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm sort of following uh, the notes as you kind of go through it. and I just sort of like got to that bit and ju- I was just like, what? What? Honestly... You know, know. when you just think it couldn't be more horrific that he is raping 11-year-olds in a graveyard. It's over a fucking tombstone. It gets
1: worse somehow. Like, how can it be any worse? Yeah. Following his conviction, police received information that, at the time of Lee's disappearance, an unofficial and secretive youth club called The Shed was being run in the annex of St Dunstan's Church in Cheam. This club was run by none other than William Lambert. And after he was put away, several individuals came forward to report that they had attended the shed many years ago as children and had been molested by him. In light of this information, the police decided to dig deeper into the church, the shed, and the possibility that Lambert may be involved in Lee Boxall's disappearance. They appealed to anyone who had grown up in Cheam in the late eighties and early nineties and had frequented the shed to reach out to them. And to their surprise, two more people came forward with very disturbing memories. One woman who attended the shed as a teenager described to the police how the shed had become popular because underage children could smoke and drink freely there. The woman remembered William Lambert very well and described him as being intensely creepy. She also reported that from the moment she and the others began going to the shed, Lambert would bombard them with inappropriate and creepy questions, which included being asked if they were virgins and what their sexual preferences were. And Lambert would tell girls that if they slept with him, they would do much better at school. And according to the women, this was often enough to convince gullible young girls to actually go into a back room with Lambert where there was a mattress. So we can just imagine
0: Yeah, I mean it's so it's so sad and so yeah, just what a despicable human being. And it it's sort of evoking memories of Jimmy Savile because I've been watching The Reckoning I know you've watched it Bethan on BBC I have yes I'm three quarters of the way through and yeah it kind of uh just really all of this this whole case I think you know I really think Jimmy Savile was really really active particularly so in the 80s and I think there was a Mm -hmm. whole underground scene wasn't there which we can't really talk much about for legal reasons with certain people involved and I just think that this at this time there were, you know, huge swathes of these VIP paedophile rings operating throughout the entire country, particularly in the southeast. And yeah, I just it just brings brings me back to Savile and you know all of that. And yeah, that manipulating young girls by asking them you know inappropriate questions like are they virgins and. And, yeah, just preying on their naivety to rape them. It's just awful.
1: it really is. And I feel like now because it's maybe one of the very few good things about social media and the rise of that connectivity is that actually an old man saying to a group of young girls, if you know, if nowadays an old man said to a group of fifteen year old girls, "You can come to my shed and drink." And started asking them questions like that. They would be filming him. They would be reporting him. They would be laughing in his face. They would be telling him he's a creep. There would be a lot more that young girls nowadays I feel like would be more comfortable to to almost know that this is wrong. And that's not to say that all and it's not to say that it doesn't still happen because there's still going to be people who take full advantage of their power and their status in whatever way that is. But I do think that back then for him to say to girls you know oh you'll do much better in school probably to say to them well you don't want your parents to know that you've been here drinking because you're 15 and that was a very valid threat well then well then you can do this with me and I won't tell them that you've been drinking if you don't tell them this and I don't know I do hope that nowadays there'll be more more society kind of has told people that this is so wrong
0: yeah I think I think it's like you say it, it it's not that it doesn't happen now but I and that would be naive of us to to say that it doesn't because we know it does and we've covered cases where we can see that people of are course, manipulated yeah. and taken advantage of and they're vulnerable and and it does happen but I do think that yeah it absolutely is a case that people are just a lot more clued up now we everybody you could speak to a 10 year old child and and say what's a paedophile and they would know and if you did that in the 80s that word wasn't really used we'd we'd have different words for it maybe but it wasn't really talked about people weren't really aware that people were out there committing these heinous crimes against children they weren't really aware of that as much so I think in general people were just a bit more naive than than they are today and it's sad really that we have to be on on our guard and we have to educate children in different ways now it's a good thing, but it's a sad thing that that we have to do that. But yeah, I do think, yeah, it just goes back to the 80s. The 90s was just so different. The 80s in particular, so different. Uh, it might as well have been 100 years ago.
1: And there was a pub when I was in college that would serve underage people. As long as you went and sat in the garden and you weren't in the pub, they'd serve not super underage, but you could be 16, 17 and go there and drink. And that was pretty common people knew about that like the what the young people knew about that and that actual the pub did get closed down and the landlord lost his license and i'm sure he probably was put in jail i don't really know i can't remember but the idea of well we'll let you drink i mean as a as an underage child you're gonna think that that's really exciting so it's just creepy though isn't it it just makes me feel sick
0: we'll move on in a second but i I also just think things like grooming so you know, this man was using alcohol, cigarettes, for example, as uh, ways of grooming children and attracting them into his den. And again, if you could ask a 10 year old child, what, what, does grooming mean and they would probably know so they know what to look out for whereas back back in the 80s I don't think anyone would have they would have just taken it at face value that wow this guy likes kids and he lets us go someplace that's private he won't tell our parents and he'll let us drink and smoke brilliant let's go whereas now children will think "Mm, there's something dodgy going on here I'm not going to do it
1: yeah A male witness came forward who'd also attended the shed as a teenager and even attended school with Lee Boxall. He confirmed that Lee was aware of the shed and that there had had been there once or twice. And whilst the male witness claimed to know nothing of the abuse that was occurring there, he recalled getting the general vibe that boys weren't really welcome at the shed. It was mostly used by young girls. And he did also recall, recall how on one occasion he had noticed a mattress in the back room. So that statement was consistent with the police police's Mm. other female witness who recalled how young girls would be invited to a private place where there was a mattress another woman who had visited the shed as a teenager chillingly recalled how she had been invited into the private room at the back of the shed by lambert but had refused and instead she'd asked lambert if he knew anything about lee boxall who at the time had very recently gone missing the woman claims that lambert shrugged and casually told her lee was not going to be seen again because he was dead Elsewhere, the police spoke to a prison inmate who had also known Lambert and the man volunteered to the police that Lambert had once remarked that he had killed Lee and buried him in his graveyard. But when questioned in prison, William Lambert, somewhat predictably, denied all and any involvement in Lee Boxall's disappearance. Nevertheless, the police believed they had enough evidence to take things further and they decided to perform a long and costly operation to excavate the graveyard where Lambert had once worked because they strongly believed that Lee's body could be there. However, there was one huge problem. Due to certain UK laws that strictly prohibit digging up graves without proper causation, the police were only allowed to dig up the land around graves, but not the graves themselves. This was immensely frustrating for the police. As a skilled and experienced grave digger, William Lambert was probably well aware that these laws existed. It would not have been all that difficult for Lambert to simply throw Lee's body into a pre-existing coffin alongside another dead person. Know full well that they wouldn't have been able to search that.
0: I was just going to say, you know, he's going to be an expert in this. Mm -hmm. What better place to dispose of a dead body than a graveyard? And I, I was going to say before you got there, that's what he would have done. He would have put the body in an existing coffin with an existing body in there. That's exactly what he would have done.
1: And at any given moment, working where he was working in the job he was working at, there would be somebody else who was going to be buried in the matter of days So whether or not he just had to kind of hide Lee's body for a short time or for a few days, but he'd have been able to. He'd have had plenty of outbuildings and areas that nobody would go to apart from him where he could, you know, just hide somebody until he was able to dispose of them. Yeah. Seeing no other choice and having no other leads, the police proceeded with the operation regardless. And in 2013, the excavation began. It was a massive job that took an entire year and cost the taxpayer north of a million pounds. However, when the job was done, there was no evidence that was found to suggest that Lee was there. But like we said, both of us, we totally understand that because he probably wasn't in any of the surrounding areas. He was probably within that other grave.
0: Oh, of course. Yeah, I'm thinking that they did excavate the graves but you're right of course so they spent basically a million quid just digging around the graveyard not exhuming any any coffins any bodies that were there any grave so yeah yeah of course you know it it's damning isn't it, it it's you know it's so sad to think that he mostly most likely is buried in that graveyard and we'll never know for definite and his family will never know.
1: I suppose if they had managed to find even a tiny bone fragment that was proven to be his near to another grave, perhaps that would have given them the full cause to be able to exhume the body fully. So it's still good that they did that because there's always the chance that something may have pointed to a more direct place. But yeah, it's a huge figure, isn't it, to have spent on something that, and I don't think there's anything wrong in doing this. I think it's completely right that they did, but how frustrating that they didn't find anything.
0: Yeah, but uh, what I would say, though, you know, this is 24 years after Lee had gone missing that they they haven't given up and they were happy to throw a million quid at this. And, uh, you, the, yeah, they they must have really thought that there's a real chance that we're going to find some evidence that he's buried here. And the fact that they didn't is is unfortunate, but I think, yeah, they probably know that he is buried there.
1: Yeah, and to this day, there are so many police officers who still believe that Lee's body is absolutely there, that he is buried under a tombstone that isn't his, doomed to be lost forever because UK law won't permit the police to have a proper look inside the coffins. Despite the operations failure, the police went on to make several further arrests. In 2014, three men aged 78, 52 and 41 were arrested and interviewed on suspicion of Lee's murder, conspiracy to pervert the course of justice and indecency with children. And shortly after, a 42-year-old woman was arrested on suspicion of conspiracy to those crimes. It's believed that the four individuals were arrested after being named by the victims as being adults who worked at the shed However, after questioning, they were all released without charge. Despite so much circumstantial evidence of Lee's disappearance being linked to Lambert and the shed, the police were soon frustrated to find themselves right back at square one. Lee remained missing, and they could not find any concrete evidence that he was even dead, let alone that Lambert was responsible. The detective's work in the case toyed with the idea that Lee had attended the shed on the day of his disappearance, that he had witnessed an act of abuse and he had tried to stop it, potentially he was killed due to what he had seen. Lee's father Peter commented that if Lee had seen abuse happening it was in his character to come to the victim's aid. This of course just like everything else relating to the case can't be proven but it it makes sense to me and he's a 15 year old lad so he's going to be a lot stronger physically than an 11 year old girl for example who was you know the other victim preferred type and that sort of thing. He's and being a nice, decent kid, you could imagine he just would quickly step up and say, "What are you doing? What's going on? This isn't yeah. right
0: or i'm I'm gonna report this i'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna go to the police now or I'm gonna tell my mum and dad what I've just seen and i I think yeah, it was possibly just a panicked shit, we've gotta stop this happening, and yeah he was he would have been killed very quickly in order to stop him speaking out.
1: And obviously we don't know if this is the case or not. We have no idea if it is or isn't. But if that is the case, I mean, it's horrendous that he then was killed for that. But what an absolute legend. What a hero to, to potentially have tried to stop and tried to stand up for good. But, yeah, it feels like the right theory for me, though, and it makes perfect sense. But we would, I guess, unless there's a deathbed confession of some sort, will we ever know? So today, Lee Boxall's status with the police is missing, presumed dead. Sadly, Lee's family have since come to terms with the fact that this assumption is more than likely correct. However, they still hold out hope that his body may one day be found and that he can receive the proper, dignified burial that he deserves. In recent years, Peter Boxall has spoken of his heartbreak and pleaded that someone tell him where Lee is so his son can finally be laid to rest. In an interview with a UK newspaper, he said... We just still hope that after all this time, someone will come forward and let us know what really happened to him. The ultimate thing I would like to see happen is to find his remains if Lee was murdered. I'm not interested in justice or hatred for who killed him. I just want to see finally see him laid to rest and to have closure. Regrettably, I'm as sure as I can be that Lee is no longer alive. For me, it's a case of finding a body. If there is anybody who can help us to find Lee then please don't keep that information to yourself anymore and come forward and tell us, or the police or Crime Stoppers. Let us know somehow so we can find Lee and find his remains before it's too late and I pass away and his mother passes away. We're in our 70s now, so we won't be here for very much longer. So we need to know, and his sister and niece and nephew need to know what happened to him. And I find that so heartbreaking because so often we do see the parents of somebody who's gone missing passing away before... The you know before any information comes out, or even that nothing ever comes about, and they died not knowing, and it's just heartbreaking.
0: Yeah, it's 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 just tragic, isn't it? We see it loads and loads, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's horrible to talk about, but if somebody is you know dying because of an illness as well, and they know that they're dying. And that that their time is running out. That feeling they must have of of thinking, I really am going to go to my own grave very soon, knowing that uh, I'm never going to have had an answer to this in and in, in my life. And that yeah, must just be that awful extra thing to deal with for them at that time.
1: Yeah. On September the 10th, 2018, the day which marked 30 years since Lee's disappearance, Peter again issued a fresh appeal through the charity, Missing People, saying, I have been living in limbo for 30 years, not knowing if he is alive, safe and well, or if he was murdered. And Peter also said, I am almost 72 now and I do not want my life to end without discovering what happened to my son. The aftermath of Lee Boxall's disappearance has been marked by his family's unrelenting search for answers and justice. His parents, Peter and Christine, have been dedicated advocates for raising awareness about missing persons and supporting families in similar situations. The lack of closure and uncertainty surrounding Lee's disappearance has taken a significant toll on his family as they grappled with just the not knowing what happened to him if he was alive. And if Lee Boxall is still alive, he would be a 50-year-old man today.
0: How weird is that? What a weird thought. Because mm-hmm. he is, you know, the image of him is Forever iconically. that young, Yeah, yeah. You know, we'll put it on social media, but everyone will know that image because whether you're familiar with this case or not, because yeah, it was just so widely circulated and has been over the decades. So to think that that boy would have been a fifty year old man today—that's weird to think of. But you know, very sadly, you, we we know that he is more than probably dead, having been murdered. That's that's what happened.
1: Yeah. And William Lambert remains in prison. So he maintains that he had nothing to do with Lee's disappearance and alleged murder. And, you know, that's his stance for now. So I guess, um, like I said before, unless there's a deathbed confession of some sort or he, for some reason, decides that he's going to tell the truth, why, I don't know. Um, We just may never know.
0: Mm, Very sad. Always difficult when it's an unsolved case. Um, It's horrible, isn't it, when it's unsolved? It is. I think, you know, it's very sadly, I think it is highly likely that Lee was murdered, um, probably as a result of what he saw at the shed. But yeah, you you don't know until somebody comes forward with hard evidence or a confession. So you're always left wondering. And yeah, his family, that's just torturous for them.
1: So there we go. Thank you for joining us, everybody, for this episode. It's not been an easy one, and it's probably not been a nice one to listen to. But thank you so much for joining us this week.
0: And we'll see you again next week for another episode.
1: We will. See you then, guys. Bye-bye.